Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Sometime in the future, and it might be quite a while in the future, like 10 or 20 years from now, there's gonna be lots and lots of assessments of how the pandemic changed America. And 10 or 20, even 30 years on, one of the most important pieces of those assessments is gonna be how the pandemic altered kids' lives. Kids who, by then, may have kids of their own. You know, you see these stories where a tornado hits a town and then one house is completely standing and untouched and the next house is, is destroyed. Hopefully it's not quite as dramatic, but it's kind of like that. Sal Khan rose to prominence about a dozen years ago after he created a site that helped kids learn online, Khan Academy. Certain families, certain learners have, for the most part, been able to keep up and keep learning. For a few, it's actually the flexibility has helped them. But there's been other learners where this has been incredibly hard, not just from an academic point of view, but from a social emotional point of view. And so I think it's, it's a full court press over the next year to make sure that there's ways for students to figure out what their gaps are, how do they fill them in, while also being able to move ahead and, and supporting the teachers, being able to support all these kids. Khan watched in March of 2020 as schools shut down. At first, he couldn't believe South Korea was closing its schools until the same thing happened here. Almost immediately, he was drawn into the fray when schools, whole districts, lots of worried individuals turned to Khan Academy. We saw our traffic increase by about 200 percent. Uh, normal times, we have about 30 million learning minutes a day on Khan Academy that grew to 80, 85, 90 million learning minutes a day. We saw a lot of families, parents, teachers just trying to make sense of it. How do they shift to this hybrid distance learning thing? And so and there was a bit of a leadership vacuum. So we actually were also trying to step into that, give people frameworks of what online learning could look like, what are the best practices, even things that are outside of Khan Academy's core value proposition. Sal Khan has been working furiously for more than a year, but he's noticed as gaps have gotten bigger and bigger, something that inevitably is going to change life trajectories. A slew of recent reports show kids lost serious ground academically, particularly Latino, Black, and Native American students. Latino third graders, for example, slid an average of 17 percentile points, while white and Asian students dropped nine. Gaps also opened up between kids who normally do well and kids who struggle. There was already a gap, of course, but it got bigger and harder to close. Sal Khan argued to me earlier in the summer that the reason for these gaps, they're not particularly complicated. And to understand the way he thinks about it, consider a wealthy, well-resourced family and the toll the pandemic might have taken on them. Even the families that had sufficient internet access, whose schools were able to switch to online learning quite quickly, uh, the ones that have a lot of support at home, even a lot of those kids even if they were able to keep up academically, social emotionally, it's been really, really tough. I've seen this in my own household and we've been very privileged. We have all the things you would need to, to, to bear through this pandemic well, uh, but even there it's been difficult. And then if you compound it for the, the young people who did not have sufficient internet access, their parents are essential workers, service workers, they have to go out there and the kids are at home. There might be Several people in the family who all need to share one device, none of them are able to uh, engage properly. On top of that, 
the social emotional is hitting them harder. There's not no parks to run around with, not no places, outdoor spaces to meet uh, in a COVID safe way. It's going to be very, very, very hard for the for these young people. I've talked to a lot of educators and they've reminded me, I, I tend to be very focused on the academic side, on the learning loss of like, okay, let's make sure these kids can factor their polynomials. Right. But they've, they've really pointed out that that's going to be important. That's part of the disaster recovery for sure. But a lot of it is going to be rebuilding that sense of community, rebuilding that sense of learning, get, getting back into the pattern of schooling. And that's even harder maybe for older kids who might have already been on the fence, who maybe dropping out is an option for them. Uh, so it's going, to be a, it's going to be an interesting time where we can't be complacent. Um, you know, I remember when you first got a lot of attention in the media several years ago and, and people we're like, wow, you know, here's this guy doing all this. You, you can re learn remotely on computer screens at your house. Did you ever think you would see a world in which everybody, almost everybody was learning on computer screens at their house? Like it used to be like, here's Khan Academy. It's you can use it to get ahead. Some schools are using it, but it was it was on the side. Now, wow, everything got turned upside down in a lot of ways. Yeah, obviously, I could have never predicted the pandemic itself. Yeah. But from the early days of Khan Academy, there has been a hope, uh, there has been a vision that technology could be leveraged in a way to really uh, improve learning. And I'll be the first to say it, if I had to pick between an amazing in-person teacher and classroom for myself or my own kids or anyone else's kids versus the fanciest technology, I would pick the amazing in-person teacher every day of the week. Hmm. And on top of that, if you're going to use technology, and I, ideally you get to use the best of both, but if you're going to use technology, it should never be for technology's sake. It should be in service to some pedagogical goal. And the, the pedagogical goal that we have always talked about at Khan Academy is that every teacher will tell you in a class of 30 kids, they all have different learning needs. They all have different gaps that they might have either they didn't learn it well the first time from previous grade levels or they forgot it over the summer. They're ready to learn at different paces. It's taught in every ed school to try to differentiate instruction, personalize instruction. But if you're one teacher with 30 kids, very hard to do that. And so the default in most of the system is, okay, we're just going to cover standard five today. Tomorrow we're going to cover standard six. And for some of the kids, it might they might already know it. For some of the kids, they're lost because they, they don't have the foundations. But that's the process we've, we've historically done. What we've always believed at Khan Academy is, okay, the pedagogical need is, can we support the students or can we support the teacher supporting the students so that they can learn exactly what they need in that moment and that the teacher can be provided with more information, the parents, the student themselves can be provided with more information on exactly where they are, where they could use extra supports. Then the pandemic hit, and I think this became that much more important because with the whatever variance you had before, the variance just got wider because of internet access, because of social emotional needs. So I could have never imagined this happening, and I do think the pandemic has accelerated everything by at least five, 10 years. There's been some silver linings, more energy than ever behind closing the digital divide, more conversation I've heard than ever about personalization, meeting students where they are, ways for them to finish their unfinished learning, more conversation than ever about competency-based learning, mastery learning, which is really, it shouldn't matter how long or when you're working on something. What should matter is, did you learn it or not? And if you haven't learned it fully yet, keep working on it. It's not, it shouldn't be viewed as a judgment on, on your being, so to speak. So I do think that the pandemic has accelerated all of this. 
I could have never predicted it, but I have been hopeful that over the next few decades, we would move more to these types of, of models. Because even pre-pandemic, there was a lot to worry about. 70%, 7-0, of all kids who go to community college have to take remedial math. That's remediation at a middle school level. Not The schools are saying you're not even ready to learn basic algebra yet, even though they've nominally taken all of those courses when they right. were in high school. Similar numbers for reading and writing. You have actually similar numbers at four-year four year colleges. I know out here at the Cal State system, 65% of students have to get remediation. So the, that was pre-pandemic. Uh, and, and you could imagine it's, it's gotten that much more fragile because of the pandemic. You know, uh, to that point, um, Paul Revel, uh, who uh, was the Massachusetts Secretary of Education, now at Harvard Graduate School of Education, has talked about very much what you're saying, this idea that a lot of industries, I mean, you could just take like a Netflix or an Amazon, say to you, hey, Salcon, like here's what you would enjoy, Netflix, here's what you should buy, Amazon. Um, but education is one of those industries that has not gone that personalization route. Yet you said, you know, any day of the week you would choose for you, for your kids, in-person learning. Can you just square for me when, you know, if you have an in-person teacher teaching a lesson versus a computer customizing a lesson, aren't those things at odds? No, not at all. And your question's a good one because I think that's a lot of folks' main instinct. You know, I think in any classroom, there's a huge spectrum of things that need to happen. And I think you have your foundational skills. Let's pick a math classroom, a middle school math classroom. You have your foundational skills. Can you add negative numbers? Can you take exponents? Can you solve word problems? Can you apply that mathematics? And because so many kids have lacked the foundation, that is historically where the, the classroom has been focused. And it's been focused in that industrial age Prussian model that we get from the industrial revolution of essentially... There's some activity that everyone does together. Many times it's lectures. Many teachers have moved away from lectures and have started to do things like breakout sessions and have kids working on things. But it's tended to be everyone work on the same thing at the same time. What the technology unlocks, and I really think it's unlocking in service to more human-to-human -human interaction, is the ability for the teacher to say, instead of me giving the same lecture to every student who might have different needs, I can have the students get micro lessons at their own time and pace using a tool like Khan Academy. I can have them get practice at their own time and pace, whether they're at home or whether they're in school. And that I, as a teacher, get better real-time information than I ever had before. Before, as a teacher, I really, I, I had some observational information while the kids were doing the lessons, but really only when the quiz happens, when the test happens, do I see how, how well did the students learn it. And at that point, it's usually too late to do anything about it. You then have to move on to the next concept. But what we try to do is work with teachers for the, the teachers have real-time information on which students are really engaged versus not engaged, which kids are struggling or doing well with what skills. The teacher can then look at that and say, hey, these five students, I could do a more focused intervention. The negative numbers they're still having trouble with. They've, they've done everything on Khan Academy. They need that human touch. I'm going to spend that time with it. And that's going to be more human to human interaction than in a typical classroom. Then the next 20 minutes, 
Little Billy is disengaged for some reason. Let me sit down next to him and have a one-minute one-on-one conversation. He might be blocked academically. He might be blocked for some other reason. Something might be going on at home or something going on with his friends. I can pair students with each other so that instead of having a math classroom where kids are told to put their fingers on their lips and just listen, they're encouraged to teach each other. They're encouraged to struggle and, and, and talk out loud and move around the classroom sometimes to help each other. So that type of classroom is actually far more human and you're leveraging the human beings in it. I started a physical school a couple of years ago called Khan Lab School to show exactly this because I, I was tired of being stereotyped as like, okay, he's the tech guy. He wants to just put kids in front of screens. Nothing could be further from the truth. I think there's some parts that the screen is useful, but it unlocks a lot more of other things of, of real human to human interaction. And when you think about that vision of, okay, personalization, like you say, you know, some kids are ready for four-fifths plus two-thirds in the class. Some kids are beyond it. Some kids aren't ready for it. Like, you got all the things going on. And when you think about that vision, do you think, objectively, we are really moving towards it? Or, I mean, as, does the pandemic accelerate our movement towards it? Or does it... Have people been so worried about, you know, plexiglass dividers that honestly, they're just that's just not what they're focused on. I think it's a little bit of both. I, I do agree with you. The plexiglass dividers and the COVID restrictions have probably taken a disproportionate amount of the energy. But I have got to believe that as we went through this pandemic, you have a whole generation of teachers and parents and to some degree students who are now thrown into the deep end of the pool of technology. It's been hard. It's been uncomfortable. They did heroic efforts. But it's going to lower the activation energy going forward to trying new things. I think these notions of personalization, mastery learning, to some degree, they're not nice to haves anymore. I would argue they were always necessities, but it's become more obvious that they're necessities. Because over the course of the last year, year and a half, if you and I are both seventh graders and you are able to keep learning and you are able to master your negative numbers and your exponents and your and the logarithms and the basic algebra the things that you would typically do in out in 7th grade while mm -hmm. i for some reason have checked out i've been struggling the system needs a way for me to reengage the system needs a way for me to identify what gaps I have, you know, now we're talking, you know, people use the word unfinished learning. What in unfinished learning do I have so that I can address that? If the system doesn't do that and we just only do the lockstep learning going forward and lockstep learning on top of weak foundations, those 70% of kids who have to get remediation when they go to college, you're going to see those numbers get even larger. And, and that's not just a problem of remediation. There's huge amounts of data that show that that is the biggest predictor of students not graduating college or not graduating college while having debt, which has all sorts of negative predictors for, for later on in life. Let's take a quick break here. I'm Karen Miller. I'm speaking with Sal Khan. He's the founder of Khan Academy, a nonprofit providing online education. When we come back, we're going to talk about what Sal saw when he partnered with large school districts over the past year and how school might change permanently because of the pandemic. You can grab or share this whole conversation on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. For more than a dozen years, Sal Khan has been the guy that people associate with online learning. Back in the early 2000s, he started tutoring his cousin using online tools. He got more students than he bargained for. 
Khan Academy has now changed how millions of kids get ahead and catch up and digest information. But when the pandemic sent more than 50 million students home in March of 2020, Sal Khan saw demand like he had never seen before. He has plenty of concerns about what's happened over the last year and a half, but there were some surprises on the upside, too, like how quickly many towns and cities were able to switch course and how seriously they are taking the money they've gotten from the federal government. I've been talking to a lot of superintendents, state commissioners around uh, the American Rescue Plan that's been coming as part of the last stimulus, and a lot of dollars are flowing through, through to schools. And the, the districts and the states that I've seen be pretty prudent and thoughtful about this, they're saying, look, this to some degree has been more extra money than we've ever seen, but there's a lot of pressure. We, we can't waste it. They're running small-scale experiments right now. And then the ones that are working, they're going to put more of those dollars. They have three years to spend the money. And they're going to use those dollars to build up the capacity over time. And so even when the money runs out, they've built a new muscle. Uh, so, so we're just trying to work with the districts in any way we can to, to make all of this just a little bit more likely. Do you see, uh, since you do work with so many towns and cities, do you see gaps between wealthier and poorer districts? Um, I know um, one of the folks I've talked to actually a couple times over the last uh, few months is Pedro Nogueira, who runs the um, School of Education at USC, and they've found really a lot of hardship in the Los Angeles Unified School District in terms of kids being able to engage uh, a lot of poverty, which which uh, impacted people's ability. Um, I just wonder if do you see those gaps? Oh, there's massive gaps uh, yeah. there, and and I think unfortunately, you know, when you listen to the economic press, people talk about a K-shaped recovery, which took me a little while to process initially, but then I realized what they're saying, which was, you know, you have some people in the economy that have been doing just fine. If anything, during the pandemic, they've done even better. If you work in right. tech, if you work in if you work in markets, if you if you own a lot of stock. But then there's a lot of people who've suffered. And, you know, if you're a service worker, you run a restaurant much, much harder this past year. I think we've seen something very similar in, in education where if you are a small school district that had a lot of resources, it was likely that you already had a lot of devices in house. It was likely that you were already used to leveraging it. It was likely that you could already assume that most of your students had sufficient internet access at home. So even before the pandemic, a lot of those smaller, more affluent school districts were already in the pattern of doing some of this. So when they had to close down physically, not a lot was lost in terms of continuity. Other things were lost for sure around social emotional learning, but the learning kept going. That happened at my kid's school. It's a tech savvy school. All the families have devices at home. Uh, they, they, I think they missed really one academic day over the last 18 months. So they, they were able to keep learning. And it's a full year, full day school. So they were able to keep learning over the summers, over breaks, over all this other time. While we see a lot of schools, and it, I think it's the resources to the school, it's the size and complexity of the school or the school district, and then it's the resources that you can assume at home that have all been sources of friction. Because even if the school has resources, and even if they want to put up a distance learning plan tomorrow, if 10% of the kids, 20% of the kids, 30% of the families at home don't have sufficient internet access, that plan all of a sudden got a lot more complicated than the plan at the affluent school where you can assume that everyone has internet access at home. So you have to print out stuff. You have to figure out how do you get the device? How do you support? Even if you get the device, is the device being shared by parents who need to do remote work now, who have to look for a job? So it's in, you know, other social services, uh, special education, meals, free lunch program, 
much, much more complex when you talk about a Houston ISD or you talk about a Detroit public schools. Uh, so there's been a lot of throwing darts at a lot of people because <laughs> there's been a lot of frustration. But what I've seen educators do and administrators do over this past year I, I, is nothing short of heroic. You know, sometimes there's a stereotype about bureaucracy, and I'm sure there was bureaucracy and some things could have happened faster. But I, I've seen things happen in record time and people take, you know, fairly heroic actions on, uh, you know, just to make sure that, that kids could learn as, as quickly as possible. So it sounds like when you stand back uh, and you kind of reflect on this, you worry about that K-shaped recovery. Uh, and I'm not talking about money here. I'm talking about like education K, right, where where the people at home with the mom and dad who know calculus is kind of different from the people at home where mom's out cooking or, you know, like is a nurse or whatever it is. Ab absolutely. And this is even before the pandemic. You know, when I talk about mastery learning, and if you get an 80% on a concept, you should have the opportunity, the incentive to get that to a 90 or 100%. Otherwise, you're going to be building on that 20% gap the rest of your life. It's been a not so secret secret that people with means, if either you're, you know, if you're, if your parents are professors and they can tutor you directly, right. or if they have the resources to get you a tutor, that you, you've essentially been doing mastery learning in these families forever. You got a 80%, your family says, hey, keep working on it, or we're going to send you to a summer camp where you can keep getting some academic learning so that you're more likely to have these strong foundations so that the next class you're not going to build on the weak one. Kids with less resources never had those, and that was already a source of inequity. Now the pandemic hits, the kids, the families with resources, even for them it has not been easy, but they've been able to, for the most part, keep learning. They've been able to supplement whatever the, the school, even in the situations where the school wasn't able to pivot to online or hybrid learning quickly, or they didn't do it that artfully, the, the parents have been able to supplement that in a million different ways to make sure that kids are learning and they have the devices. On the other side, if you don't have the devices, you, you couldn't even really start. And then you have to have, be reasonably tech savvy, know what resources there are out there. And this is frankly one of the reasons why we've been partnering with school districts uh, for the last several years is because that's the way that we figure we can reach the most kids, reach the most teachers who could use it. But there's definitely been a disparity due to the complexity and the resources of these different types of districts. Uh, there, this has been an issue of uh, some degree of controversy, but you do see a certain percentage of people saying, for for a number of reasons, I want to continue doing remote, remote learning in the fall. Some school districts have said, okay. Some school districts have said, no, we, sorry, we can't support that. Do you think that remote learning, like on a broad scale, indefinitely, is a good thing. I think it's a good technology. It's a good option to have. I don't. I would say it's a it's a blanket good or bad thing for everyone. I think there's some obvious use cases where remote learning is very powerful. If there's a pandemic and you're not, you can't go yeah. someplace physically, could you imagine if we had this pandemic in 1990 pre-internet? The learning loss, the isolation would have been dramatic, or the pandemic would have been dramatically worse. You know, I've talked to the state commissioner in Alaska. If you're talking to a really rural place where you might have to take a boat to school or sometimes, you know, the, the closest school is 20 miles away. Once again, remote learning could be interesting. If you uh, are in a small town where you have access to a school, it might be right around the block, but that school really doesn't offer calculus. It doesn't really offer mm -hmm. biology at the same level of rigor that you would get at a, a fancy private school in, in an urban area. Well, then that's where remote learning or hybrid learning 
uh, could be interesting. And I do draw a distinction between remote learning and online because online can be blended with the classroom. Most okay. Khan Academy last year had 12 billion learning minutes. Six billion of that was directed by teachers. And those numbers are similar even pre-pandemic. So they were using it in the, in the classroom, once again, to personalize, to meet kids where they are. So I think it's never technology is always good or technology is always bad. You always just have to think about the use case, start with a pedagogical goal, and then work from there. We're seeing some really interesting hybrid use cases where districts are starting to realize, okay, it's gonna be really valuable for kids to come on, on site, but because of scheduling, uh, one student who might have needed to take that chemistry class, well, maybe they could go to the library and take that with the teacher on the other side of town. And that's okay. And that actually has some positive. They're still getting their in-person experiences, but then they're able to connect with another teacher. They're able to meet other kids virtually. Uh, so so I, I think it's going to be interesting to hopefully not lose some of the flexibility while getting the best of both worlds. You touched on this a little bit before, but for somebody who's worried that kids if screens are incorporated more into the classroom and then kids go home and, you know, play video games, do you worry about a point at which there are too, there's just too much screen time in a day? Oh, yeah. And this is another ironic thing coming from me. I'm, I'm probably one of the most sensitive to screen time people, even for myself, even 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 during this pandemic, when all of us are working on Zoom all the time. I, I unless I'm doing something like this, I usually tell people, hey, would you mind if I turn the video off, go mm -hmm. for a walk? Uh, just so that my eyes can focus on something that's not two feet in front of me and I can get some fresh air. Uh, right. And I see this with my own kids. And I, I've always said this pre-pandemic, and I, and I think this still holds true. For me, once again, it's not screens good, screens bad. Screens, to some degree, have been a lifeline over the pandemic. It's really making sure that you're getting all of the healthy things you need in life. So are you able to go outside? Are you able to have social interactions off a screen? Are you able to breathe some fresh air and focus on things that are not two feet away from you? And, and screen time, it's not all equivalent. You could imagine if you have a middle schooler or a high schooler and they're spending three hours, four hours, five hours on a screen writing a paper, writing a novel. That's a right. constructive use of a screen, designing something on Photoshop, or they are on Khan Academy, learning something, preparing for the SAT. That's constructive screen time. If they're, you know, vegging out on social media, stalking their friends or, you know, that, and we all do a little bit Not of that. That's positive. That's, we can all do a little bit of that. We right, all need right, a little right. bit of that, but right. that you have to be very, very careful about. And you just have to make sure that there's enough of the other healthy things that you're doing. Mm -hmm. I will say because of how much of what was in person has now gone to screen, there has been a screen fatigue. And we have seen that. We've been seeing that when we talk to schools. The total amount of learning has gone down. The total amount of learning just in general, because there's only so much you can do when everything is on the screen. I'm hoping as we get back to normal, the in-person is not on a screen anymore as much as possible, and that then the screen becomes really valuable for, for the types of goals that we've been talking about, personalization, mastery learning. If you're learning over the summer, you're learning over the weekend, you're trying to catch up on something, the screen's there for you, and you're hopefully using it primarily for constructive things, and you're still playing, going outside, um, getting fresh air. So then finally, give me a sense of... I mean, you could look at it that this was a shock to the system over the last year plus that will change the future of education. Um, give me a sense of how you think it will change that future and whether or not, I mean, will it help uh, American kids get more prepared for 
the well-compensated jobs of the future. I hope so. <laughs> you know, as I say, expect the worst, hope, hope for the best. <laughs> I think there's some unambiguous positives that, well, there were negatives in the pandemic, but they will lead to positives. The negative was the digital divide, how many families didn't have sufficient access. The positive is more energy than ever behind closing the digital divide. So I think the pandemic has accelerated closing the digital divide at home by five to 10 years. That's going to pay huge dividends, frankly, not just from an academic point of view, from an economic point of view, because even the families are not going to be able to participate more. But just with an academic lens, I've given talks to 3,000 teachers in the room, and they all nod and they all agree when they hear us talking about you have 30 kids in the room, they all have 30 different needs, you want to personalize for them. When you move lockstep for at the same pace for everyone, you know you're leaving some kids behind, you know some kids are bored, but it's been very hard for teachers to execute on that in the classroom because they couldn't assume that kids have devices at home or they didn't necessarily have the devices in the classroom. I think now with the digital divide getting closer to being closed, more teachers are going to be able to think that way. I think just just the chaos of the pandemic has gotten everyone thinking in new ways. I do suspect we will boomerang back a little bit back to where we were before, but some of the stuff won't be lost. This notion that every school, every child in the district needs a device access, that learning does not have to be as bound by time and space anymore, that there's, there's ways to keep kids learning even when they aren't in the physical classroom. I think even notions of mastery learning, competency learning, it doesn't matter how you got there, what matters is whether you learned it or not. Uh, all of this has been accelerated by the pandemic. Sal Khan is the founder and CEO of Khan Academy. Sal, thanks so much. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, Kara. Don't know much about history. We've got more about the work that Sal Khan is doing, trying to level the playing field. That's at innovationhub.org. And just ahead, another perspective on education and the pandemic, this time with a twist of politics. It's an issue that affects uh, suburban voters a lot. Suburban voters, obviously, are the swing voters right now. From GBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. We're going to be right back. All this way.